This morning I invite you to turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17, starting at verse 22. Acts 17, verse 22. You can turn on the TV if you watch uh, any kind of um, award shows or anything where there's a competition and there's going to be a victor at the end of that competition, sporting events, award shows, uh, the Oscars, anything like that. And inevitably what you'll hear is whenever someone goes to accept the award, whether it's the trophy or uh, the Oscar award or anything like that, uh, most people, uh, even those in Hollywood, if you can imagine it, will stand up there and say, I'd like to first of all thank God. That's the very first thing that they say, I'd like to thank God. And it's shocking whenever we hear people out of Hollywood doing that, but oftentimes it's not quite as shocking whenever you hear football players say it. They'll say at the end, I'd like to thank God for this victory. Um, It's very rare to actually hear anybody lose and say, I'd like to thank God. I just want to make that note. Very rarely do they do that. Actually, Colt McCoy did it. Uh, He was a quarterback for... um, uh, for the Texas Longhorns and in the championship game a couple years ago, I think it was 2008, they lost. Uh, they lost in a dramatic fashion. And it was the kind of thing where you'd expect for someone to walk away and say, I'm not thanking anyone for that loss, but Colt McCoy stood up and said, I'd like to thank God and my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for uh, all that he's done for me, namely for saving me. And there was this big shock because everyone said, why would you do that? Well, uh, Serena Williams, uh, famous tennis player, every time she wins a tournament, she wins them often. She stands up and she says something like this, I'd like to thank Jehovah God. Um, Now, that sounds really super extra spiritual whenever Serena Williams stands up and says, I'd like to thank Jehovah God. Um, uh, Jehovah is one of the names of God from the Old Testament, and so we hear that and we think, wow, what a really spiritual person to stand up and thank God. The question that I have for us, though, is should we merely accept Whenever someone says, I'd like to thank God, specifically somebody like Serena Williams. Uh, Because whenever Serena Williams says, I'd like to thank God, she doesn't have in mind the biblical God, the God of Christianity. She has in mind the God of Jehovah's Witness, who is a God that is not like the God of the Bible. And many times whenever um, people stand up to thank God in very public settings, they don't mean anything like the God of the Bible. Well, what do we believe about the God of the Bible? That's why we have our creeds. That's why we have our confessions that remind us of what we believe about God. And doctrine matters here. Because if we have a wrong idea about who God is and what he's done for us, then we will have a wrong idea also about what it means to be saved before God. We'll have a wrong idea about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Many times what people say is when they say, I'd like to thank God, they say, I'd like to thank God for making me so great so that I can do this for myself. And really what they're saying is, I'd like to thank God for, for making me this way so that I don't need him very much. Well, that's nothing to do with the, the God of the Bible. And that's why we're going through this series of looking at what we believe as Christians Because what we believe about God is absolutely vital to who we are and what salvation means. Christianity actually stands in stark contrast to the rest of the world. And we're going to see that today in this passage. And what we're going to see is that Paul addresses a world very much like our own. We see that in 2,000 years, people haven't changed very much. That their ideas of God are pretty much the same. And the God of the Bible... The scriptures actually have something to say to the world in which we live. 
So let me read this for us. Acts chapter 17, verses 22 through 31. Acts 17, 22 through 31. Hear God's good and kind word to you this morning. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and I observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he has made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. For the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Let me read that last part of chapter 17. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysus the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help in understanding his word. Pray with me. Our Father, we thank you for this word. I pray that you would help us as we uh, break down what it means to have you as our God Almighty, our Father, and our Creator. I pray that you would remind us of your grace, remind us of your gospel. I pray that we would all hear from you today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So we're going to look at this passage in three ways. Uh, We're going to look at God, the Almighty, God, the Creator, and God, the Father. So first of all, God, the Almighty. Let me give you a little bit of background to what's happening here. Paul has been in the city of Athens. Athens would have been the the very top of the top of the uh, scholastic world of this day. Uh, One of the things that we didn't read, but right before this, uh, we're told that the men of Athens would sit around and would do nothing but hear about the latest idea, and they would argue back and forth about all the various things uh, that people believed, and they would talk about what is the truth. It'd be very much like many of our universities where nothing really happens, and the the professors just sit around, and they don't hardly teach at all, and they just talk over and over and over, and we give them millions of dollars every year to do this. Athens was very much like our universities where those sorts of things were happening. Um, They just like to hear the latest thing and have their fancies tickled for a while, uh, and that's what they did. Uh, But Paul stands up in the midst of of this group of people and he says, uh, Men of Athens, I recognize a few things about you. First of all, he says you are very religious. That's a reminder to us as well that everyone that we encounter, even atheists, are very religious. The Bible says that everyone worships something. Even those who say, I don't believe in God, they are actively worshiping and pursuing something. And that was true in Athens as well. Uh, Paul was addressing two, two groups of people, the Epicureans 
in the Stoics. And before you just like doze off and say, okay, he's going to give a lecture on the Epicureans and the Stoics, let me very quickly tell you what the Epicureans were like. The Epicureans were a people um, who only believed that the material world was all that they saw around them. There was no such thing as the supernatural world. There was no supernatural God, only the natural world around them. But inevitably, what they would do is they would say, we don't believe in God, just the material world. But what they would do is they would worship the material world as God. Well, you say, well, we don't have anyone like that around us today that worships the material world. Well, actually, we do. We call them scientists. Many of the scientists that operate uh, in the world today say, I don't believe in anything supernatural. And yet they say that the world is eternal, that the material world, the stuff of the world has always existed. And therefore, that material world is God. Uh, Very similar to what we see today, atheists, scientists, most learned people in our universities, most of the, the, uh, the most intellectual people that are out there, most of the, most of the politicians even, uh, if you really get to the heart of what they believe, they would say something very similar to that, that there is no such thing as God, that it's only the material world that we see. So Paul was talking to people who, in essence, did not believe in the supernatural or practical atheist. The other group were the Stoics, and the Epicureans and the Stoics would battle for dominance in this day. What did the Stoics believe? Well, they believed that God was like a world soul, that there was a God that existed, but every God was in everything, God was everything, and therefore he was all around, and we are part of God, and God is part of us. But God is not a personal, loving, or caring God. It's something like you see in Star Wars, something like the Force, where there's God is made up of good and evil, Good and bad, right and wrong, God is all of those things. And all you have to do is just channel channel yourself with that force and then you can learn how to live the life the way that you need to. And you say, well, there's not a lot of people like that around today. Well, guess what? And next year, Star Wars is going to come out with their like sixth or seventh movie. And it's going to be the same thing that they're promoting, that God is in everything, that God is around everything, and that you are a God. And even worse than that, many of our so-called Christian pastors promote that idea. Guys like Joel Olstein will stand up and say things like, guess what, if you work really hard, you can be like God. Oprah popularized that view a few years ago, that you can be like God. We aren't so far away from these two different views that you are a God or that there is no God. And Paul was talking to this kind of world We haven't progressed very much in 2,000 years. And actually, you go back to the book of Genesis, and these exact views were were there in Genesis. All throughout human history, it's been uh, basically the story of these two competing views and the biblical view of God saying, this is the truth, you must believe this. So what does Paul say into this world? What does Paul say into our world? Well, it begins, and he says in verse 24, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. The first thing that we see is that God is one God, the Almighty. No one spoke about God in this day that way. No one said that God was all-powerful. If you spoke about God, you spoke about the way that humans could manipulate him to get him to do what they wanted. But Paul says, no, there is one God And he is all-powerful. There is one God. He is omniscient. He knows all things. And he's omnipresent. He's always with us. 
But he also speaks about God in this way. Look at verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. We also see that God is intimately involved in the world, that he is not removed from us, he is not far away from us, but that he is intimately involved, even so much as setting people in their proper place at their proper time. God is powerful and almighty. What people tend to do is they either say that God is almighty and powerful or that, and therefore not involved, the Muslims do that. They say Allah is powerful and almighty, but he is not involved with, the, with us. Or they say that he is intimately involved, but he is not almighty. But the Bible says clearly that God is almighty and involved. That God is not weak like us. Every other religion, every other faith creates God in their image. They make their God to be like themselves. And what you realize is that the non-biblical gods are more like mere men than they are like the God of the Bible. God is not hindered and will not be hindered or held back by men. God is not dependent by us because he is almighty. He is powerful. And God will accomplish all of his will and he will make sure that it's done to the fullest. The first thing that we confess as Christians is that we believe in one God who is almighty. Secondly, we see here, and Paul spends a great deal of time talking about God as the creator. Paul says this, He made the heavens and the earth in verse 24. He does not live in temples made by man. And he made one man and all mankind to come from that one man. It's a shame that I have to say this out loud. But the Bible teaches that God created this world by the very word of his mouth. By his very powerful word. He created everything out of nothing. Because he spoke it into existence. It really is a shame that I have to say that because that's a basic foundational point of the gospel of Jesus Christ and of the scriptures that God made the world in which we live in. The world, according to the Bible, did not come about out of nothing because it just sprung up out of the primordial ooze that was there and everything just kind of sprung up because gases slammed together and then all of a sudden, a couple of billion years later, you get us. That's not the way that God made it. God spoke the world into existence. A very popular view in Paul's day was that actually the gods made the world by their interaction with each other. So there were all these other little gods that were around and then they got into fights and then their fights led to us. So into the world of violence, violence comes and the world is violent. And that's a way that they tried to make sense of the world around them. But what we learn here is that the world was not created in violence. The world was not created Uh, Not good. As a matter of fact, God says over and over in Genesis that he created the world good, good, good. And at the very end, on the seventh day, he said, it is very good. And he rested from his work. Here's the implication of this, that God created this world. We sing that song often, this is my father's world. And what do we say when we sing that? We're saying this, the implication is that this world is his and it belongs to him. This world is not our own. Um, you are not the one that has control over your world. Um, many times when we wake up, uh, you know, we're, you're going to do this. Uh, many of us will do this tomorrow morning. We're going to wake up and we're going to say, I'm going to grab the tiger by the tail. I'm going to make sure this day goes exactly like I want. I'm going to make sure that I'm in control and I'm the master of my own destiny and things are going to go right today. 
And if you have children, you recognize that at 30 seconds into it that it's not the way it's going to work out. Well, that should be a reminder to you that this world is not your own, that you are not in control of this world, but God is. God made it good, and he made it to serve him. And we learn some things by this as well. We can't treat the world how we want. We can't simply ask for the world to do the things that we want, but because the world is God's word and he made God's world, he made the heavens and the earth all things visible and invisible. We should expect that this world is going to serve him and be for him, his glory over anything else. God made it good. God made it good to serve him. And then, again, this is one of those really sad things that I need to say. And it's a shame that I have to say this out loud, but we certainly should not be worshiping the creation the Bible is very clear that there is a God and there is his creation and there is a distinction between God and his creation. As a matter of fact, that is the foundation for all of the rest of Christianity, that there is a God and he made the world to serve him and the creation is distinct from that God. So we do not worship things that are created. Uh, what's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not bow down to an idol. You shall not worship an idol. But that's the very nature of humanity. The reason why that one is first is because that's what our hearts go after. We will go after and worship things created over and above the one who created the world. That's what our hearts are like. We should not be worshiping the creation. And that's why Paul has to remind the Greeks here. He says, verse 29, Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the arts in the imagination of man. We should not think that God is like that. God is not like our, the things that we create in our hearts to worship. We should not worship the things that are created. Parents, you should not lift your children up and say, my children define who I am, and it's according to them that I find my identity or my meaning. Husbands and wives, you should not look for your meaning from your spouse. You should not look for your meaning from your job. You should not look for your meaning from your wealth or your health or any of those things because those are all things that are created, visible and invisible. We should worship the creator above all. What are the, what's the application of this to us? Well, we submit to God's will for his creation. Uh, as Christians, we follow the scriptures. And when God says that there's a natural order of things, we follow that natural order. We are to be good stewards of God's creation. That does not mean that we use up the world however we want, but we need to be stewards of that creation. We also need to be good stewards of our body because God created our bodies and we need to take care of them. But we also are to enjoy God's good creation. One of the most amazing things that we read from the scriptures is that God put us in the midst of a beautiful garden. And he told us and commanded us to enjoy his creation. We are to be good stewards of it, but we are to enjoy it and not abuse it. So we see here that God is, secondly, he's the creator. Uh, Thirdly, we confess this every week, that God is a good father. And Paul says this, that God is not very far from us. Look in verse 27, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. God is the father 
of all of us. We are of his offspring. This means this, that God is not merely the giver of life. He is not merely one that gives life and then checks out, but that God is the sustainer of life. In the Greek world, God uh, or the fathers were not very involved with their children. Uh, he left them to others to take care of. But in the Jewish world, fathers were very, uh, very involved with their children. And we see that uh, as we read earlier in Psalm 103, verses 4 and 5, that God intimately knows our frame and he knows that we are dust. That's another way of saying that God, our Father, knows that we are weak and frail. God knows that we are a wreck because he knows us. If you want another good picture, a wonderful picture of God the Father, uh, Jesus points to, the, to God that way in Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. You know this well as the story of the prodigal son. And here, what you find is not a God who is distant and removed, but when the Son comes to the Father and says, I want nothing to do with you, the Father longs for and loves the Son, even so much so that He runs to His Son when He sees Him coming, that He tackles Him, that He showers Him with tears and with kisses. Uh, The prodigal son was the one that was in the pigsty, uh, wrestling the pigs for food. And when he goes to the father, he goes to the father and he's covered with the slop and the filth of the pig. And he's walked through a desert to get to the father. So he's covered in dirt and sand and pig filth. And what does the father do? The father goes and embraces the son and kisses him. So all of that filth that is on the son gets on the father as well. A beautiful picture of the love of God that nothing is going to get in the way of his love for his children. And then later on in that story, when the righteous son, the the holy son, the good son, refuses to go in and celebrate with the father and and the younger son, what does that father do then? He goes out to the older son and asks him to come into the party as well. That's the picture that Jesus wants us to have of his father, the father that runs, the father that takes disgrace upon himself, that takes our shame upon himself. Unfortunately, in the world that we live in, dads get a bad rap. Oftentimes, dads are the butt of the joke. You turn on the TV, ABC, NBC, um, CBS, any of those shows, and anytime there's a father figure on those shows, what they want to do is they want to show dad as the simple, awkward, oafish man that really can't handle anything, and the mom swoops in to take care of everything for the dad. Uh, We have a running joke with my dad as well, and it really is just a joke. We actually made him T-shirts. One of them said that dad ruins everything, um, and dad is awkward. Uh, And it's a funny thing that that dad will walk into a room, and and it seems like he says the wrong thing at the wrong time, always the wrong thing, and dads end up getting to be the butt of the joke. But we forget that dad is the one that provided the room that we get to sit in for the very fact that we get to make fun of dad for being awkward. (laughs) Dad provided that. Dad provided the safe space. He provided the food oftentimes for us to sit around. Dad cooks it. He prepares it. And then guess what? Dad cleans up after us. And all the while we make fun of dad for all the hard things that he does. the, The dad of the Bible, the father of the Bible though, God our father is not like many of our dads and not like how we treat our dads. The God of the Bible commands respect all the while being very loving toward his children. Some of you have had good dads. 
Some of you have had great dads who have taken care of you, who have loved you. And if you were to make a list of all the great qualities that your dad had, uh, it would look a certain way. Now, some of you have had bad dads, and if you said, I would want my dad to be like this, you could take those two lists and combine them together, and they would look exactly the same. We all know what good dads are supposed to be like. They're to be sacrificial. They're to be providers. They're to be protectors, lovers, disciplinarians, and they're to prepare their children for the world that is to come. And that's the picture that we have of God, our Father, a loving, caring, sacrificial, providing God, but also a God who asks for his children to repent of their sin and to flee to him for grace. There's a good story of a father uh, named George Beverly Shaw. If you don't know who he is, he was um, a very famous man in his own time. He was the worship leader for Billy Graham and his crusades. This is a story that I've heard secondhand, and I've looked for it uh, in other places. It's perhaps in his autobiography. I haven't read, but uh, a very good, uh, very good source told me the story about George Beverly Shaw. He had two children, a boy and a girl, and as they were growing up, um, uh, George Shaw. Uh, I'm not sh- sorry, not Shaw. Shay, George Shay. Um, he um, uh, he married uh, the love of his life, his high school sweetheart. He adored her, and they had two children. And these children, every day, they, he would go off to work, and they would terrorize their mother. And uh, Bev Shaw, uh, Shay loved his wife. He adored her. And he could not understand why these children did not adore uh, her the way that he did. And he would sit him down every evening, and he would say, Look, I, I can't have you disrespecting your mother or uh, not listening to her when I'm gone. Um, and so one day he came home, he found his wife just crumpled up in a mess, and he said, they will not listen, they will not listen. And Beverly Shaw took his children, and he sat them down, and he said, okay, I'm going to leave work tomorrow, and if I come home, and if I hear the report from your mother that you've treated your mother this way, then there's going to be a punishment, and you will regret it. So he went away to work the next morning, and he came back, and it was the same story. His wife was a wreck. The children did not obey. Bev Shea took his children into the bedroom. He took off his belt, and he said, I told you the punishment was coming. And the children then at that point expected that they were going to get a spanking. Bev Shaw took off his shirt. He laid across the bed. He gave his, his, um, he gave his belt to his son. And he said, son, whip me. Whip me until you think the punishment is enough. And the son said, I will not do it, Dad. I will not punish you. I deserve the punishment for my treatment of my mother. And he said, Son, it's the only way you're going to learn what your punish or what your, your, your sin deserves. And so he took the whip and he whipped his dad. And, and he had the daughter do the same thing. Whipped his dad. And after it was over, the tears bawling, crying, saying, you didn't deserve it, you didn't deserve it. He sat them down and he said, guess what? This is what Jesus did for you. He took the punishment that you deserve because the Heavenly Father loves you this much. He sent His Son into the world. That's what fathers do. And our great Father took the punishment that our sin deserves so that we would not have to, so that we could be in communion and fellowship with Him. We see all throughout the scriptures over and over, uh, especially in the gospel accounts, that, that Jesus Christ loved the Father and the Father loved the Son. There was an unbroken fellowship over and over and over. And then at the end, 
Jesus Christ is hanging on the cross and he cries out this psalm, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The fellowship was broken. Why would a loving God who adores his beloved son, the one with whom he is well pleased, the one who did not deserve it, why would that son ever say, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken so that we could be in fellowship with the Father. He did it for all of us who would believe in Jesus Christ. We see in the scriptures that God is powerful. He is the Almighty, that God is the creator, that we belong to him. And then lastly, that he was a good father who loves us enough to take the penalty for our sins upon himself so that we could live with him and have fellowship with him. That's what we confess about God the Father. No other religion believes that. Every other religion says you must sacrifice yourself for the Father. Christianity says he sacrifices himself for you. Do you believe it? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for giving us this message. We thank you for this word. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to continue to believe in the goodness of the Father as we have overwhelming proof of that goodness to us through the Son, Jesus Christ. I pray that we confess that you are a good Father to us, that you love us through your Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Christ's name. We're going to close by singing our hymn of response, number 468.